I'm Kerry Adams and you're listening to Kerry's Connoisseurs coming to you from Solid Gold Podcasts. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers and all the people who make it happen in the liquor and luxury industries from around the world. Hi, got Jeff Greer in my studio today and I'm lucky because he's still just as cute now, Jeff, as you were. 30 years ago when I met you. Hi, welcome to Carrie's Connoisseurs. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Carrie. It's a pleasure to be with you. And yeah, likewise, we agree. We're both cute. Ah, oh, you special <laughs> thing. So you are, and there's your sister. I'll just stay so, the whole time and hold Kath, the bottle. Kath, hello, Kath. Say hello to the, to the listeners and the lookers. And the, so nice to see the Greers. I forgot to bring the bottle of bubbly that we're speaking about to put in my studio today if you can believe it. So I'm going to put, I have to put a huge photograph of it on somewhere. Callum or Shannon or someone's going to have to make a big, well, there yeah, we put have it, it there so everyone can see it. <laughs> so just for everybody to know, Jeff Greer is obviously part of the Greer family. And I picked up something last week, I think, on my email feed that came through that you are celebrating your 40th harvest at Valera. That is yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. 1983, you bought that farm. You keep talking. There's the old story of how did you get into the wine business. And I actually, our family was in the poultry industry. And luckily, we're out of it now because you've seen what happened, what's happened to poultry Thank this year. Thank God for that. Can you imagine? I went to Stellenbosch University to study poultry science and uh, ended up being told that I would be the only student in the class. <laughs> and wouldn't I like to choose something else? <laughs> Who in their life chooses to study poultry farming? <laughs> <laughs> so I chose viticulture and enology, and you know, I thought, well, you can't have a chicken tasting, so let's get into the wine. <laughs> you can. You can have a chicken and wine tasting. You can. So I studied viticulture and enology, and that was the beginning of my love affair with wine. You know, I spent a year overseas after my degree, and then worked at Deline for three years, and... Uh, you went Valera to Germany, came onto Jeff, the market. Hey? Yes, you I did, yeah. You went to Germany. I did, yeah. And is that where you sort of... Because I need to find out the origins of your love affair with bubbly. You and Peter Ferreira are the two kings of bubbles <laughs> in this country. No, well, the origins of the, of the bubbly love affair happened uh, when we bought Valera as a family. So we kind of disinvested in poultry and, and uh, obviously... The folks saw that the next generation was uh, more interested in wine, and we, and we bought uh, Valera in 1983. But uh, myself and my cousin Simon were now in charge of Valera, and we thought, well, we have to have a product that uh, we could associate ourselves with, something that was going to be our focus category. And uh, at the end of 83, we had the good fortune of meeting a, a guy from Champagne, a young guy who was basically my age, Jean-Louis Denois. Yeah, I remember that story. Uh, he came from the Champagne House de Noix-Pierre-Fils in a little village called Cumier, which is just outside Epinay. And uh, he recognized that, you know, Simonsek was already making bubbly, but he said, why is no one focusing on, on bubbly in South Africa, bottle-fermented bubbly? And he said, you know, he he's comes from a family of champagne producers, yeah. and he had access to all this know-how. And he was prepared to offer us access to that know-how in return for a royalty. And on the day we met him, we decided on a royalty agreement, which basically meant that we only started paying once we started selling. And it was a, it was a percentage of, of turnover. 
I had the opportunity to work for four vintages in Champagne. And that was at the time when it wasn't so easy for South Africans to, to spend time in France. And yeah. he used to come out here and we had a, an incredible 10-year royalty agreement, which we extended for five years because we, we uh, benefited so much from it. Yeah. Is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. He, he basically got caught up in a succession problem in his own champagne business. His father wanted to pass it on to three kids and only he was interested Oh. And he had to then buy the others out, which uh, he couldn't afford. So he actually, uh, his father sold the business, and he went down south to a place called Limou, which is the second biggest appellation for bubbly in France. Yes. And uh, he started making bubbly there. And I used to visit him there because by that time we were friends. You should have bought the champagne farm with him. <laughs> we Can couldn't you afford it. <laughs> but we, we basically fell in love with the south of France and bought a vineyard there. And we do make some bubbly in the south of France. Should we take the opportunity to tell everybody, remind them, that you have also, you and Lynn have also got a beautiful little winery in Roussillon. That's in correct, yeah. And we make some and, bubbly there. And I was there chatting to someone the other day, and I think it must be almost 20 years that you've had that. How long have you been in So France? we've had that for 17 years. Yeah, I We bought so. that in 2006. And, you know, if you add that to my vintages here, we're talking... 57 vintages in, in the Greer family wine business. That's just amazing. Yeah. It's just, have you still got parents? Are your, either of your folks still alive? No, both my parents have passed away. I just but thought your dad was hair. Robin. Hey? Yeah, me. That's but right. That happened early on. <laughs> your dad was Robin, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And there's another Robin in the Greer family, isn't there? Yeah, Kathy, my, my sister who's involved with us here, her son is Robin. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's so right. this whole thing is hugely Greer-infested. I mean, you can't get away from the Greers. But I just need to remind everybody that, aside from anything else, I just love the way you all fly quietly under the radar. You always have. You're almost like Enid Blyton's perfect family. You know, did you ever read <laughs> Famous Five, Secret Seven? You all have fun and you all do it so well and you do what's right. That's my thing about the Greers in the industry. And I have a sort of a special thing in my filing cabinet in my head for all my wine farmers that I love with my heart. And yours is a, in that filing cabinet. It's simple. It's under the radar. It's modest. It's humble. It's successful. Way beyond anybody really knows, I think. And it's just got, it's got this quiet modesty about it that I absolutely love. So I'm going to shout from the rooftops about all the things that you have achieved. We need that because maybe we are too humble and we don't say enough about what you we don't. do and have achieved. Mm. Um, maybe for marketing, you need to do more. <laughs> I'm going to market for you this whole year. We're going to do a series <laughs> on, on Greer bragging. So start bragging like right now. Look, uh, the, the one thing that... Uh, that people uh, don't really understand about us is that um, although we we quite a, a big fi a family wine business you tend to kind of get overlooked for the for the smaller guys the new guys but uh, we've probably been one of the most innovative wine companies in South Africa for example yeah. uh, every single bubbly category apart from the very first wine but we were the first to get involved in a, in a joint venture with a, with a champagne grower, a royalty agreement, 
We were the first to do a rosé cup classique. We were the first to do a, uh, a Blanc de Blanc, which was also a Brut Sauvage. We were the first to do a Prestige Cuvée, and we were the first to do a Light Cup Classique. And you went organic. And, and we uh, have this incredible uh, sustainability reputation. Yeah. We're not officially organic, but we are very, very focused on sustainability, yeah, both environmentally and socially, because, uh, you know, we, we basically don't use any insecticide. We've planted about 120,000 indigenous trees in our game sanctuary, which is an add-on tourism thing that we do. But those tree planting efforts have actually basically neutralized our carbon footprint. Mm. We control insects and, and uh, that sort of thing naturally. Mm. We also are very careful with our, with our water usage. We harvest all our rainwater off the cellar roofs. We generate all our power when the sun is shining by means of solar panels. Do you? That showed a lot more perspicacity than most. Exactly. We didn't do anything about solar power here and we're all in the dark at we the stage. Yeah, yeah. We have 1,200 square meter panel which generates about 300 kilowatt on a day wow. like today, which is a sunny day here. So winter's yeah. a problem, nighttime's a problem. And our next step is to put in batteries. We're already talking to the suppliers for an order. But the battery storage is obviously the expensive part. So we haven't gone yes. there. We haven't gone there yet. But with ESCOM, uh, as unreliable as it is, we need the battery storage. Yeah. Yes. So, Jeff, your harvesting has not been as interrupted, I'm assuming, as most people. I, I've been wetting myself for the wine industry with this load shedding that we're having because... Yeah, it's massively disruptive. Yeah. How do you sit in the cellar with no power and you've got however many tons of grapes coming in and yeah. you really, really need stuff to be doing, you know? We also have a generator which burns diesel, but uh, we have a, a modern generator which uh, is more fuel efficient. But our solar can supply all of our requirements, but it also helps the generator if we need a bit more power. Uh, the generator does uh, contribute. So there's never a break in power here. Mm. We still get the, the cuts, and sometimes the, um, the load shed is right in the middle of a press putting pressure on. And, uh, you know, you get uh, pumps and motors that are stopped under pressure and it does mm. damage to equipment. Mm. But look, uh, let's keep it positive. Eh? We're not going yeah. to we're Let's not going forget to about moan. those woes. We, we are boom like a plan. We've always <laughs> made a plan in the past. Exactly. It's your 40th harvest. And what is the harvest looking like just before we go any further? Because you must have picked already, hey? We've virtually finished our bubbly harvest, which is about 60% uh, of our volume. It's looking great. I mean, look, it's been, it's been quite hot, but dry, so we've got very healthy fruit. And we've been working with an Italian company for the last five years uh, to introduce a new pruning system, which is called branching. And it basically uh, allows the, the vines to grow old gracefully. So it's a, it's a system that allows for better sap flow in the vine, and it allows for better bunch positioning and better canopy management. And basically, after five years of introducing this system, we're ending up with yields on our older vineyards that are 15 to 20% higher than, than before. And uh, this turn, is a massive plus. Could we turn plus. this into a, into a tablet for women my age, or maybe a face cream, <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> 
Absolutely. We need this branching system for... <laughs> Let's have a Valera branching system for females or for yeah. people, for humans. No, look, it's, it's all about uh, tender, loving care. So I think that we can do with our, with our women, right? We can do that. In fact, we should all be doing. Exactly. Jeff, talk to me about the... Oh, and we were busy about to say the yields are up, but is the quality up too? So we're very happy with quality. I mean, you know, the, the heat ensures healthy fruit, which is a big plus, in, especially in bubbly. But you do get a drop in acidity, which is not ideal for, for bubbly. But, you know, we start picking early. So all the stuff we picked until about a week ago had good acidity. And now it's uh, starting to be probably a little bit on the low side. But as you know, in South Africa, if you have an acid problem, there is the possibility to add some acid. You can reacidify. You You've can never re really had to. And I must tell you that sometimes I quite like that softer acid. Sometimes yeah, it's quite nice. Absolutely. You know? I mean, excessive acid is a problem, especially for me, but maybe not so much you. But as you get older, <laughs> acid's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I don't like my, my bubblies to be too, too acidic. And mm. it's one of the reasons that I love Valera's bubbly because, listen, there's some hectic acid that you have to have on, on specific bubblies just to make them fit the mold, you know. Yeah, well, but, Japan itself, you know, and they, they have high acids. And as a result, if you go there for a week, your body's tingling by the end of it, you know. No, it's terrible. And you want to pull your teeth mm. out. It's awful. Mm. Yeah. But... On balance, the, the Valera, certainly all your tradition bubblies that people really should be familiar with by now because they're all over the place. They've got a beautiful soft, they've got that nice bright acidity, but it's soft in your mouth. I don't like that stuff that rips the enamel off your teeth. Absolutely. So I'm happy if your acid levels are going down a bit. We'll leave that at that. If you extend that philosophy, there's always the opportunity to balance your your regular bubblies with what we call yeah. dosage or liqueur d'expedition. Yeah. But that dosage gives you opportunity to balance the acidity. But if you make a bone dry or a brute sauvage like we do for our brute natural, the acid can be softened by the malolactic fermentation, which is an yes. acid fermentation replacing malic with half the amount yeah. of lactic, which also uh, results in a bit of softening, yeah. I don't want anybody to be drinking brute sauvage. I think that everybody's embarrassed to say that they love sweeter stuff. So I'm going to tell everybody now that you've just released your nectar. I'm yeah. so excited that you've released it. I haven't tasted it yet. Corin brought it around to me yesterday because she knew that I was talking to you today. And I got so busy that I didn't get around to tasting it. But tell us about your nectar and what brought you to finally make me a nectar. I love Demisec. We've actually been producing a little bit of demisec for quite a few years. Uh, on the woolly shells, you would have seen a, a Valera demisec uh, for, for years. I and, shop at uh, Norman Goodfellow. <laughs> and Norman Goodfellow <laughs> have insisted that we started making a Valera nectar. So that's mm. part of the reason why we um, have come out with a nectar. But we've had experience. This is the only category where we haven't been like the first. But we have been shown by one or two other producers that nectar is very important in South Africa today. There's an emerging market that loves nectar, which is basically demisec, which is obviously a slightly richer, fruitier, sweeter style of Cap Classique. And, uh, you know, that, that style is uh, 
is something that sells really well, especially if you if you package it uh, beautifully. And uh, this is the this is the way we've done it. We've put a sleeve on it, and we call it the Lyra Pearls of Nectar. So, um, you know, Nectar is basically the name everyone understands to, to mean something sweeter, richer. And um, we call it Pearls of Nectar to basically give you that uh, understanding that there are these bubbles in the wine that uh, raise to the surface or rise to the surface and they look like pearls. You know, we always talk about the, the pearls or the stars. You know, on Valera we also have, uh, you know, plenty of natural plants and flowers that uh, have these little pearls of nectar on the flowers. And so to, to sort of draw attention to the bubble and to our natural way of uh, farming, we call it pearls of nectar. We think it's, it's quite an attractive name and it gives us a little point of difference. It's already selling really well. We, we put it on the market in December, but we didn't have enough prepared to even do any marketing on it. So we're only starting with that now. We're sending out information, press releases, and that's how you heard of it. So it's basically really uh, coming onto the market now. And um, we're very happy to have joined this uh, Nectar category and uh, and we think that uh, it's going to become an important uh, product in our range. I can't wait to taste it. I'm going to put it in my fridge when I get home from these <laughs> studios. And I'm going to have it over the weekend Wonderful. and I'm going to send you a message. Excellent. But Jeff, moving, moving on from there, um, I know that it's quite a long time ago now already that you and I did all these kind of things. But I think you did a thesis when you did your Cape Wine Masters on... The effect of champagne, or the or the um, the part that champagne plays in South African MCC um, industry, have you made your bubbly with an express intention to emulate champagne, or what was in the back of your head when you were making your first bubbly at Valera? Yeah, look, my thesis was about the the role of champagne in the development of metro champenoise around mm, the world. MCC, yeah. that's right. There's something like which, that. Which uh, which basically involved the South African connection as well. So there there, there were a couple of um, champagne producers that uh, came out. There was a mum connection with Krona many years ago. But, you know, we had this connection with Jean-Louis Denois. And, you know, the thing is that uh, that most people that drink and enjoy bottle-fermented bubbly, you know, especially when we started in the 80s, they were the same people that, that loved champagne. So, you know, our view was that we wanted to offer a replacement for champagne in those days. And so we, we wanted to do it right, you know. So that's why we focused on uh, the champagne style. That's why I spent so much time in champagne and I still go there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we feel that uh, the whole Cup Classique Association and, you know, most of the producers have adopted the same philosophy about bringing a, a little bit of a, of a South African element, but at the same time recognizing that uh, they're trying to please the same guys that love champagne. Yeah. This is the bottom line. So we do things like using Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and a bit of Pinot Meunier. We do things uh, in terms of production like picking by hand, a whole bunch pressing, fraction separation like they do in Champagne. And we do mm. things like um, looking at the analysis, which should be equivalent to what happens in Champagne. 
And then we, we also work with reserve wine and dosage and the rest of it, which is, which is all champagne. And you, I mean, you leave yours on the lease for quite a long time as we well. We do, and, and that extended lease aging is critical, you know, perfected by time, we say. It's been brilliant, and at the same time, everybody always says to me, oh, why do you have to pay so much money for champagne? And We should actually be charging the same money for our MCCs as we're paying for Moet and Verve and what have you. Listen, we maybe haven't put as much marketing spend in as LVMH have, but it's a capital-intensive business, the art of MCC, mm. whether it's called champagne or method champenoise or method cup classique or whatever. It's blimming expensive. Who wants to put in an investment and only be able to realize a return on that investment some five, six years later in some cases, or even 10 in other cases if you're releasing a late vintage, you know? So it's, it's a very, very labor and love and capital intensive product. And Valera just is one of our biggest contributors to our gorgeous bubble. I think we make fabulous bubbles. Absolutely. In South Africa, don't yes, you? I totally agree. Champagne have put themselves on a pedestal and they've marketed them in themselves into a position where they can ask higher prices. But as a result, the grape prices are a lot higher. We benefit by slightly lower grape prices. But one day, uh, Cup Classique will be similarly priced to Champagne because prices will go up. And uh, Do you make a bubbly at Domain Greer? We do. We do. do, hey. But uh, the, the Domaine Greer bubbly is slightly different. It's, you know, Roussillon is sandwiched between Limoux and Cava, which is the bubbly growing area north of Spain, Spain. in the Catalonian mm-hmm. area. And we're actually in French Catalonia. And one of the varieties that the Catalans grow, both in, in the Cava region and in the French Catalonian area, is a variety called Macabio or Macabur, as they call it in France. And we have plenty of that, but we also have a Chardonnay vineyard, which is what they make Cremant de Limoux from. So we, we, mm. we actually have a sort of a, a champagne, cava, crossover style of bubbly. So You're it's like a, a hybrid. Yeah, like yeah. a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> so we make yeah. this, this bubbly from Macabur and, and, and Chardonnay, and it's really popular in the area. Do you bring any of it to South we Africa? We do. We have it in our tasting room, and we sell it to people. Some people love it here. But, you know, the Valera bubbly is, is what they really come to buy here. But the, the French yeah. bubbly is just an added interest factor. I actually, when I grow up and become a really big girl, I want to come and live in Roussillon with you and, and your family. It's the one of the most beautiful yeah, places beautiful. in the world. Are you feeling like you're gravitating towards there for retirement? Are you ever going to retire? So, I kind of reached retirement <laughs> age last year. In our succession plan, I've committed to three years, albeit at a slightly reduced uh, uh, level. Pace. Pace. Good for you. So, uh, you know, just a, a percentage less. And I will spend more time <laughs> overseas. I have uh, kids in, in, in the UK, and uh, so, you know, I need to go there. But uh, I will be visiting Domangria for sure. I'm not sure that I have a, I have a successor at Valera, but I'm not sure I have a successor at Domangria. So we'll see what happens there. You've got really clever children from memory. You've got accountants and lawyers and rocket scientists. What are they all doing? And I know that there's some other Greer cousins that are in, in South Africa that are in the cellar with you. Yes. You've got an Alexander. So I have an you? Alexander. He's, he's my cousin's son who is taking mm. over the winemaking role from me. He's already made it more comfortable for me and allows me to 
delegate and spend less time in the cellar. That means, in Englishman's <laughs> layman's terms, that means more time for Jeff Greer to be naughty and party, exactly. I think. That's my plan. <laughs> yeah, so my kids, uh, yeah, the, the one's a, a CA, but she, she works in a, basically a headhunting firm as a, as a CA. And I have a son who's in financial services, but, uh, but they still have this uh, strong connection to Valera and uh, love being involved. And uh, I think they still nurture some idea of coming back here one day, but uh, I'm not uh, holding out any hope for that at this stage. Yeah, I don't think our kids, I've also got a child who lives overseas. I don't think our kids are ever coming back here, sadly, other than for holidays, yeah. which is fine. I mean, that's the way of the world. Is Kathy's son, is her Robin going into the business? And is Alexander Simon's son? No, Alexander is David's son. Uh, Simon David. Simon has a son who is also a CA, but he's, he's very enthusiastic about the business. And Kathy's okay. son, Robin, has basically gone in the marketing direction. And he's uh, like, his like his mom. And he could very well be involved, yeah. But they, they're all young. They need, to, they need to find their feet, get experience. Uh, our family constitution says five years of experience outside of the business before they can think of coming in. You Greers need to write a recipe book <laughs> because your family recipe, whatever it was, it had just the right amount of everything in it. Your wine also has the right amount of everything in it. Thank you, Kerry. The whole Greer story is just balanced and gorgeous. How much am I going to pay for this Pearls of Nectar, do you think? You are going to pay Around the about. same amount that you pay for a bottle of Lira Tradition, which is about 175 on the shelf, somewhere odd. around there, 175, 180. Yeah. yeah. So do we think that we can tell everybody to rush out and buy a couple of cases for Valentine's Day? Because it does seem a bit perfect for Valentine's Definitely. Day, Definitely. We've put in the stock. We're preparing for a Valentine's Day rush. Our promotions are connected to Valentine's Day. Okay. So we just got in the sweet spot, are you going to make a pink nectar ever? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> but you've jumped like, the gun. It's like, you've jumped the gun. It's like a fizzy packet of pink marshmallows. I love it. I love We haven't pizza. done it yet, but we are under pressure to do it. And whenever we feel pressure yeah. to do something, we know there's demand. So the answer is yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Mm. So... If I read between the lines, is there a little splash of something muscatish in there? There is, because our view with nectar is that people expect it to be richer and fruitier. And uh, the little bit of uh, muscat in the dosage helps to just give it a little bit of a fruit lift. That's why I asked, because all the, all the best demis from around the world have all got that little mm. splash in their dosage, yeah, haven't they? Yeah. So I'm very pleased to hear that. So we've got, again, the recipe is 150,000% spot on. It's just perfect. What else do we need to know from Valera, Jeff? Jeff, what's up? Stuff you're allowed to tell <laughs> with your clothes on. <laughs> the plan here is to focus more and more on bubbly. And, uh, you know, more and more it's, uh, it's difficult to sell a big range of wines. We've always been associated with, uh, with quite a mix. And... Mm. Um, in our succession planning and so on, we've recognized that bubbly is our strength. It's, it's where our um, business can be most successful. And uh, mm -hmm. that's why we've added the nectar. And, you know, we want to add a, a rosé nectar yeah. in the future. And that means that we can um, 
definitely turn our business into a 70% sparkling wine business. 100%. You do what makes Absolutely. you money. Absolutely. That's what you have to do. It's what we know and love as well, you know, because mm. money is not the thing that really drives us. It's the passion and the excitement of, of doing what we yeah, love. Yeah, just the money helps. But the money, the money helps, helps because if you, if you don't make yeah. the money, you might not be there next year to continue making the bubbly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And talk to me about the demand for South African bubbly overseas. Are you exporting quite a lot? Look, the demand was low uh, five years ago. Interestingly... During COVID, the demand increased, and it was because uh, there was more and more interest in South Africa from our traditional markets, partly because uh, there was a bit of sympathy for all the uh, alcohol bans that we were experiencing, and that sympathy mm. buying created a demand for a lot of wines, but particularly bubbly, and you know, mm. it, it stuck, and people have discovered that uh, we can make bottle-fermented bubbly that is up there with some of the best in the world at an affordable 100%. price. We've actually developed markets uh, that we never, we never had before. I think COVID is probably one of the biggest heists that the world will ever have seen in the history of mankind, mm. but we can save that for another discussion when we get drunk together one day on lots of bubbly. But one of the good things that came out of COVID for me is that everybody started to drink more because we were all sitting at home working from home, trying to work. If we were in the liquor trade, we weren't allowed to work unless we did it illicitly. Yeah. And people like you and me who were under the spotlight, can you imagine Norman Goodfellows having been caught trading illicitly mm. during COVID? So we didn't, but a lot of people did, as we know. But it did encourage people. They had time at home. Yeah, they also they stocked up before the ban. engaging with you know? each other. Most people knew a day before the ban and stocked up. They stocked up. And they were spending time at home. They were forced to get to know each other again. I mean, I think people who'd been married for 35 years suddenly realized who they were living with and that it was quite nice to share a bottle of bubbly or, or red wine or whatever. I think people, it was good for the liquor industry in many, many ways. Not that I'm encouraging alcoholism you or anything. You know what else happened you know what was that uh, during COVID, you, you weren't supposed to buy and drink alcohol. So there was a there was a massive growth in alcohol-free wine and alcohol-free other products. Yes. But uh, we realized that there's a massive niche out there for alcohol-free wine. I think you only do that under extreme duress, <laughs> Jeff, don't you think? I do. We're not planning to put a Valera <laughs> product, but uh, oh, please. but but there, there, interestingly, you know, there's there's a health element, there's a designated driver yeah. element. And there's the re religious element. So there, there are people that want alcohol-free wines. And, you know, why not? Uh, the technology um, to make those kind of wines has improved to such a level that you can actually yeah. have a half-decent alcohol-free wine or at least low-alcohol wine. Yeah, you can. It's a bit like a sort of pizza-less pizza for me. <laughs> but I do get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I do get that a lot of people. And, and I think that a lot of people, a lot of the youth, remarkably, when you consider how much we drank mm. when we were young, a lot of the youth are not drinking at all. Yeah. I don't know why. I feel sorry for them, yeah. but there are a lot of them that aren't. Well, maybe they maybe they use other stuff, you know. Well, that yeah, that's probably yeah. why I do feel sorry for yeah. them as well, <laughs> because there's nothing like gorgeous wine. No, absolutely, and, and it's social. And hey, everybody needs. You must it. see my social life. At least my wife doesn't <laughs> drink as much as me, and she can drive me home. <laughs> <laughs> 
I interrupted you after having asked you what is new at Valera. Are you hinting to me that you're going to make alcohol-free? No, we, we, we might do it, but under a different brand. Okay. Okay, so, you know, obviously there's, there's, a, there's a big succession plan, so that will mm. have to roll out. <laughs> Valera is going to uh, go strong and go to new heights. So Valera is going nowhere. going nowhere. We don't have to worry that the Greers are moving abroad forever and we're going to lose our bubbles, King. Kathy's not going anywhere. Her son's getting involved in the business. Everything's happening just like it should. Exactly. Jeff, you're a gorgeous man. I love you. I love your family. I love your product. Yeah. We're going to put pictures of this stuff all over the place. Fantastic. And you and I are going to catch up a lot more often this Wonderful, year. Wonderful, Carrie. And we're going to brag about Valera because there's lots to well, brag Well, we love about. you and people like you that have that enthusiasm for our product. Thank you. We do. Have a fantastic weekend and we'll all drink Valera Pearls of Nectar. On the 14th of Wonderful. Thanks, Kerry. I'll toast you on the day. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Thank you, James. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.